Now, Father, we have just sung the great words of Martin Luther. A mighty fortress is our God. And we have sung about your great book, the Bible. And Father, this morning, in particular, we worship you because of this book. We want to worship you and praise you because you have committed your word to a book so that we can understand it, we can read it for ourselves and understand what you have to say to us, and we can learn the truth, and the truth sets us free. And so we praise you, Father, for it, and we give you thanks this morning for your word in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. If you would turn with me back to the book of Genesis, chapter 1, that'll be the first stop this morning. This morning, we are privileged to have Truth Remains, the Truth Remains exhibit just right down the hall. Uh, Just a show of hands, how many of you have already been to the exhibit? If you have not been, that's wonderful. If you have not been to that exhibit, please don't miss it. It's a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for you to see and learn about these first edition English Bibles and how we got our English Bible. And so it seemed appropriate to me this morning that it would be right for me to teach on something of where we got our English Bible, not just our English Bible, but the written Word of God. And so I told the first first service, I have far more to say than I have time to say. I normally preach seven pages in my typical sermon, and I have 13 here. So pray for grace, and let's dive in. So point number one, let's, let's think about this, the dramatic history of the scriptures, the dramatic history of the scriptures. When we think about God and how he revealed his word to mankind, we have to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden because that's where it started. As we have seen many times before, when when man was created by God, he was created perfect but not autonomous. That is, he was perfect in mind and body and will and yet He needed revelation. He needed to be told things, to be taught things. Truth had to come to him from outside of himself to bless him and to protect him. And that's what we find in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. This is the first recorded account of God speaking to man. And this is what we read. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. We read, And God blessed them and said to them. Now, when you're thinking in terms of God giving us his truth, that's where it begins. God said to man. And by the way, this is the very thing that the the serpent will attack. He will say, hath God really said? And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so we see the first thing that God reveals to man was man's role on the planet. He was to be a co-regent with God. He was to lead and rule as God's helper, God's representative on earth. And he was to do it in such a way that would bring him great joy. He was to multiply. There would be a people multiplied out of Adam and then Eve, well, Adam and Eve, and they would bear God's image. 
And so God's glory would be spread all over the earth. So this was God's first direct communication with man. In theological terms, we call this revelation. You should hear within the word revelation, the shorter word reveal. Because that's what revelation is all about. It is about God revealing himself to man. This was God's communication to man. And revelation is when God reveals truth. In this case, it was a revelation about man's purpose. It was a purpose that Adam would would not be able to deduce on his own. God had to tell him, this is why I made you. This is your purpose. This is your goal. But there was another revelation that God gave, which man would not have deduced on his own. Namely, the danger of sin. And so just look over at chapter 2, verse 16. Genesis 2, 16. And here again, God speaks to man. This time he commands him, saying, From every tree in the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will die. Now that's an important revelation. I mean, think about it. You're in the garden. You just kind of woke up to your first life, your first day of life. And... And God speaks to you, and he tells you certain things. Look around, look at the glory of what I've created for you. All of these trees, feel free to eat from all of them except one. He would have never known about that one. If God had not revealed to him there is danger in that tree, he wouldn't have known. He wouldn't have known. He wouldn't have had any chance to not die as a result of reading that. So this was a really important revelation. It was a really important revelation. Because God wanted to protect man. His plan for man was to bless him by giving him productive work and a reason for living and pleasure and joy and contentment with the wife of his youth and children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren and great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren and on and on it would go. God wanted to bless him, but sin was bound to ruin it. So God, because of his love for man, gave him an important revelation for his protection and his well-being. And so here, all the way back in the book of Genesis, God is already teaching us this eternal truth that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. As you know, however, man and his wife disobeyed God's command. Deceived by the trickery of Satan, they ate of the forbidden fruit and they plunged mankind into sin. But this was not the end of their relationship with God. You would think it might be because of the warning and the dire, the direness of the warning, and yet it wasn't to be the case. It, rather, instead of God abandoning them to themselves, he did something wonderful. He started giving them more and more and more and more revelation. They were going to need it because now they were going to live before his face in a sinful world. And the only way they were going to do that is if he told them how. At first, his words to man were given orally, and they were passed down from parents to children by word of mouth. But when Moses came on the scene, a millennia later, an important change took place. 
God took Moses up on the mountain and he gave him a revelation, but this time it was different. This time it was written down. And this time, for the first time, and the only time, God wrote it in stone with his own finger. Now we have the beginnings of the written word of God on tablets of stone. And then after that, from time to time, much of God's revelation came to mankind in written form, but but not always directly from the mouth of God. First, the Holy Spirit moved Moses to write the book of Genesis, and then the story of the Exodus. And then came God's revelation about how to worship him in Leviticus and more of his holy law in Numbers and Deuteronomy. And now we have the Pentateuch, and some of which was spoken directly from God to Moses. And I believe much of it was given to him through a different process by the Holy Spirit called inspiration. Now we have inspiration, not just revelation, but revelation by inspiration. And this is the way God would largely do it for the rest of history, through the prophets and then through the apostles and a few others, God gave his word to man by means of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, this is exactly what Peter was speaking of in 2 Peter chapter 1 when he said these words, but know, but know this first of all, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of the human will. It doesn't come from the human mind. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. It's inspiration. And Paul makes it even more explicit in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired of God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for how many good works? For every good work. And we're talking about the scriptures here. It's revelation given by inspiration. And now it's, now it's the sufficiency. He's referring in this passage, we're jumping way ahead, to the sufficiency of scripture It is sufficient for every good work to teach you everything you need to do to please God. The word inspired literally means God breathed. Theonoustos. God breathed. It's an interesting word because what it means is God actually breathed into men, the very words he wanted them to write down. But it wasn't dictation. It was the Holy Spirit moving in their soul, in their heart, so that their personality becomes evident within their writing, so that John's writing is different than Peter's, which is different than Paul's. And Peter can say of Paul's writing that Paul's writing is especially difficult. And in the very context where Paul is, Peter is saying that, you think, Peter, you're, you're harder than Paul. But their personalities are coming through. Why? Because God is inspiring his word through them. It's, it's as if, let's say we have, um, let's say we bring Marcia up here and we give her Beethoven's fifth. And we say, Marcia, we have a, a little upright piano here, maybe this little keyboard to sound like an upright. 
could you play Beethoven's fifth? And she would play it. And we'd say, wow, oh, that, was, that was amazing. Now, play it on the baby grand. Would it be different? Yep. The notes would be exactly the same, but the sound will be different. What's different? The instrument. The instrument was different. And God played his prophets. He prayed, played his, his apostles and those who were with him to give us by inspiration the scriptures, the truth of God, the revelation that we needed. And by the way, this is the only plausible explanation for how this book, which was written over a space of 1,400 years by different men, various lands, from Italy in the west to Mesopotamia and possibly Persia in the east, the writers themselves were not only separated from each other by hundreds of years, but also by hundreds of miles, and they all belonged to different classes of people. They came from different um, economic backgrounds and, and different trades. Some were fishermen, some were kings, and, and the whole gamut in between, and yet the finished product came together in a perfect unity of theme and purpose and message. It's like, it's like taking a group of men, let's say, who don't know each other, and you go to one country and you say, I want you to sculpt this hunk of stone. And you go over into Italy and you give another man a hunk of stone. And I want you to sculpt this into something. You, you just do it and I'll worry about. And then you go over to Greece and then you go to Africa and then you go to China or wherever. And you give all of these men a different hunk of stone and they carve it, they chip at it, they mold it, they shape it. And then you go and collect it all and you put it together and there's that beautiful Michelangelo statue of David. That's what the Bible's like. It's, like what, it's what the Bible is like. And it's almost as if it were not really by many minds. It, it's almost as if it were produced by one mind. For indeed it was. Because though the different instruments were significantly different, it was one God and one message. The importance of the fact that God gave his word in written form is frankly something that cannot be overestimated. Think about this. By having it written down, God ensured a much more accurate preservation of his word than would have been possible if they had just continued passing it down orally. You ever played that telephone game or whatever it is? You know, you get a string of people and you whisper a message in the first one's ear and, you know, and it's something like, um, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, et cetera. And, and by the, you know, 20 people down, it's, you're, you're picking up a hamburger in and out. You know, the message is lost. The message is lost. But when God had his word written down, he preserved the integrity of what he said. Also, think about this. Written words provide an opportunity for repeated inspection and for careful study. You should be listening to what I say and what other Pastors, whatever preachers, Bible teachers, or authors say about the Bible. And once in a while, you're going to go, wow, I, I never thought of that before. I've read that text, never thought of it. Does it really say that? If it were given to, to you orally, there'd be no way to test it. But you can actually open your Bible and go, huh, I think he's right. Or, no, 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 pastor, you're missing something. L look at the next verse. Why? Because it's in written 
We have it in words, on a page. It also makes God's word available to more people so that anyone can memorize and meditate, meditate upon divinely inspired truth. But God's revelation didn't stop with the Pentateuch. After Moses, God raised up other prophets, many more. As the book of Hebrews says, God spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. And as God gave further revelation, his Holy Spirit moved these men to write it down so everyone could benefit from what God had revealed. Nevertheless, not everyone was impressed. Not everyone was receptive to hearing, to receiving God's word. In fact, there were many who hated God's word and did everything in their power to silence God's word and to be rid of it, to get it off the face of the earth. And it would seem at this point in the Old Testament, Satan's conspiracy to rid the the word of God from the earth was almost successful. I'm speaking specifically of 2 Kings chapter 22. By the time we get to 2 Kings, the word of God had been copied and copied and copied, but not by many people. You know who was copying the word of God primarily? It was the kings. The kings were commanded that when they are, when they are ordained as king, when they, were, they are put in on their throne, the first thing they were supposed to do was take a copy of the word of God and make a handwritten copy for themselves. So the king would know the law of God. But there were many wicked kings in Israel and in Judah, and they stopped doing that long ago. And when young Josiah came on the scene, he was eight years old when he became king, he had probably never even seen a copy of the word of God. And when he became 26, he had a great idea. Hilkiah the priest, who was his discipler, his mentor, gave him this idea. Listen, the the temple is is in disarray. You know, the sacrifices are broken down. The altar needs repair. And and things are in a shambles. And and at 26 years old, Josiah said, "We, we need to fix that. We need to raise whatever money we need to raise. We need to hire men, fix the temple. We need to reestablish the priesthood. We've got to get the sacrifices going again. And, and, and really, they, they were going on what they had heard, what Hilkiah could remember. So here's what happened. He gave orders for Hilkiah and his priests to go into the temple, start digging through the storerooms, get them cleaned out, out with the old stuff, any old furniture, any old money, any old grain, anything. Get it out of there. We're going to have a fresh start. Get, make repairs to the temple. And so they start digging through, and one day someone comes out to Hilkiah, and they say, hey, we've, we found something, and we're not sure what it is. And Hilkiah opens it up, the scroll, the book, and it's God's word. It's like they found the only copy imagine? And so he brings it to, he brings it to Josiah, um, and he reads it to him. And Josiah tears his garments, and he weeps, because he knows God's people are in rebellion against the Lord. It's no wonder The temple is broken down. It's it's no wonder that our walls are in shambles. It's no wonder that we keep getting attacked. This is exactly what God said would happen if we disregarded his word. And so he called for a great revival, great feast 
a great festival, a great revival, and God did things for them that they could never have imagined. And that's the way it went. This, this was always God's purpose for God's revelation to man. From the beginning, and even after sin entered the world, God's purpose was to bless us, to bless the people that he created. His word was all about how to live in blessed fellowship with God and with one another. God frequently said things like this famous verse out of Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. That's why I've given you my word. But sinful men don't naturally desire to live under God's rule. That's the problem. We like to be our own kings, our own rulers. We like to be over our own kingdoms. In fact, left to himself, man will always hate God's word. Over and over again in the, New, in the Old Testament, we read of how the people hated and imprisoned and oftentimes even killed the prophets of the Lord. Jesus even grieved over this one time when he was approaching Jerusalem. In Matthew 23, he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to her. You know, the Pharisees and the scribes, they loved the prophets. They quoted the prophets all the time. They built the prophets' tombs. And they were the very agents by which those prophets entered those tombs. They killed them. And then they built them great tombs to honor them. And Jesus mocks them for it. Over and over in the Old Testament, we read of how people hated and imprisoned and killed these prophets. You, you might think, as I did when I was reading this this week, what prophets? What prophets in the Old Testament were killed? Well, there was Zechariah, 2 Chronicles 24, 20. He was killed. Jeremiah 26, 23. Um, Uriah was killed. Um, you remember Jeremiah was thrown into a pit and left for dead. Um, you remember Jezebel, who uh, did everything in her power to arrest Elijah and have him killed. Daniel was thrown into a den of lions. And moreover, in the New Testament, the religious leaders stoned Stephen. Herod killed James. Tradition tells us that the Romans beheaded Paul. They crucified Peter upside down and eventually executed all of the other apostles, with the exception, maybe, of John, if tradition is right, and we don't know it for sure. But if it's right, then they tried to boil him in oil, and it didn't work. And even though it is the answer to every question and, and every need of the human soul, the sinful human race has always rebelled against God's word. And the only exceptions to that or those who by God's grace have humbly bowed before the lordship of Jesus Christ and received his revelation for the infinite treasure and life-imparting truth that it is. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. And this has been the testimony throughout all of redemptive history. And though sinful men hated the word of God, God went to great lengths to secure its preservation. You know, there was a period of 400 years between Malachi and Matthew. It's called the 400 years of silence. 
And the reason it's called the 400 years of silence is because there was no prophet in the land during those 400 years. God didn't have anything to say to his people. And during that 400 years, Israel, concerned that disregarding God's word in the future might provoke God to exile them into another Babylonian-like captivity, began to take painstaking measures in copying God's word. By the way, it was during that period of time that synagogue worship was established. It was during that time that the Pharisees became a sect, as well as the Sadducees. It was during that time that the scribes, the, the role of the scribe was invented. Although there had been scribes in the past, now there's a class of people called the scribes. And you know what they did? They copied texts. They would sit in a room, somebody would read, and they would write. Or they would sit at a desk, a large desk like this, as things developed, and they would have the original here and their blank page over here, and they would copy letter by letter, word for word, space for space. And they even came up with very strict rules for how these scribes would copy each, each, um, each parchment. And I've got a lot more here in my notes that you can see online if you want to, but let me just read give you a little taste of it here at the bottom of this quotation. Just listen to the details. Between every consonant, the space of a hair or thread must, be, must intervene. Between every new parasha or section, the breadth of nine consonants. Between every book, three lines. The fifth book of Moses must terminate, terminate exactly with a line. Besides this, the copyist must sit in full Jewish dress, wash his whole body, not begin to write the name of God with a pen newly dipped in ink. Isn't that interesting? And you may think what I did when I first read that. Why? You, would, you think you'd want fresh ink. If you've ever done that, I, I started using a, a fountain pen. I don't have it with me this morning because I ran out of ink. But one of the things that happens, especially with a quill, I didn't have fountain pens back then. They had quills. And if you if you dipped in the well and pulled it out, you would have a glob of liquid ink at the end of your pen. And when you touch it to the, par- to the parchment, a lot of times it would just glob on there. And so they forbade them from doing that. If you were writing the name of God, you may not write right after dipping your pen in ink. And should a king address himself... Excuse me. So should a king address you while writing that name, God's name, you must not take any notice of him. They wanted to get every copy right. And what they produced was practically perfect. And the point of all of this is that by God's providential care, the scriptures were meticulously copied according to very strict and exacting parameters to ensure their accuracy to the original autographs. And though in centuries that followed, especially early early 20th century, when um, liberal scholars were saying, listen, there is no way that the word of God we have now is even close to what the word of God was back then. If you saw the debate between Bill Nye the Science Guy and Ken Ham, he kept referring to the scriptures as this hand-copied thing you know, that's full of errors because it got copied into the English language after being copied in other languages. And you know what? That was the old, early 20th century argument. But guess what happened? The Dead Sea Scrolls happened. 
300 years before Christ, the Essenes in Qumran. All they were doing was copying the scriptures. And when they heard that the Romans were coming to destroy their place, they ran up into the caves and they hid them and then died. And a thousand years later, a little boy was <laughs> looking for one of his lost sheep or goats, depending on the tale that you hear. And he's up looking in the caves. He doesn't want to go into a cave. He grabs a stone, he throws it in the cave, and it makes a strange plink noise. Plink. So he goes in and he finds this urn. And it's got a scroll. And when the world finds out about this, they go digging in all those caves. And they found this Isaiah scroll. That's almost the entire book of Isaiah. It's the most well-preserved scripture of that time. You can roll it out. It would go all the way across this room sideways. And you know what they discovered as they began looking at our Hebrew text from which we translate the Old Testament and we got looking at this text from over 300 B.C.? Every letter was the same. Every letter was the same. The only difference, once in a while, a comma or a misspelling. But nothing to take away from the meaning of any text. God had preserved his word. And by the way, that happened in 1946. That's when it all began. I mean, it wasn't in, in my lifetime, but the generation just previous to me, it wasn't that long ago. But preserving the word of God in the original language of Hebrew was not enough. God wasn't interested in his book being a message to the Jews only. The gospel was given to redeem people from every nation, every kindred, every tribe, every tongue. And consequently, some 300 years before Jesus came onto the scene, 72 scholars got together in Alexandria, Egypt, and they translated the Old Testament Hebrew into Greek. And the significance of that translation cannot be overestimated. And the fact that it was translated in Alexandria kind of hints at why. Now, I want you to get out of your mind, Israel. If you, if you think in terms of maps like I do, you know, just we're not talking about Israel here. We're talking about Africa. There was a group of Jewish scholars who lived in Alexandria, Africa. And it was a, it was a city that was established by a name by a man named Alexander. In fact, his full name, as we know him in history, was Alexander the Great. Now, why is that significant? Here's why it's significant. Alexander the Great was the greatest, or one of the greatest conquerors in history. And guess what he did when he conquered nations? He Hellenized them. You know what that means? Doesn't have anything to do with hell. It has everything to do with Helen of Troy who kind of became, in, in a strange way, their, their patron goddess, sort of. And so they, when you talked about taking Greek culture around the world, they, they talked about the Hellenization of society or culture. So they would bring this Hellenistic culture into every land that he conquered. And you know what that meant? They brought their gods in, they brought their literature in, and they changed the language so that all of the lands that Alexander conquered around the Mesopotamian area, all of them spoke one language, Greek. And now you see why it was so important for these Old Testament Jewish scholars 
to translate the Old Testament into Greek. They wanted everyone to be able to know what God had said. And it's amazing. But this was just the beginning of Bible translation. B.B. Warfield says this, Even the lingua franca, that's the common language of the civilized world, did not suffice the Bible. It was the world, not just the civilized world, which was the field in which the seed of the kingdom was sown. So the gospel penetrated through every stratum and spread from land to land. We can observe its progress toward this result from the earliest years of gospel proclamation. Wherever the gospel went, there the book was found. Not as an exotic treasure, however precious, but as, listen to this, as leaven buried in the very substance of humanity and working through the whole lump wherever it went, it went as the people's book, energizing the basis of people's life and lifting the whole mass upward into new intellectual, ethical, and spiritual vitality. If you weren't here during the question and answer time this morning, we... Um, we had Logan Carr in here who was telling us about the exhibit, and, and we watched a couple of videos. Weren't they fantastic? They were great, and you should buy one of them. Uh, they're down there. There's four on that one DVD. Um, but one of the brothers, uh, Chris Wolf on the front row, talked about uh, how the Reformers would say, um, or the, the Catholics would say to the Reformers, listen, if you have the Bible in English, you're going to give it to peasants, they can't even read. And the Reformers said, we'll teach them. To read. And that changed the world. Because they did teach them to read. And they read the Bible. And it changed civilization. It changed the entirety of civilization as they knew it. This was the book. We are people of the book. And so we see from history that the word of God began to spread far and wide. In the west, it became a Latin book where the Roman Empire left its mark. In the east, it became a Syriac book which uh, brought the word of God to Egypt, Malabar, China. In the south, it became a Coptic book. In the north, thanks to men like Martin Luther, it became a German book. And then an Armenian book, not Armenian, Armenian book and a Slavic book. But most significantly for us and for the world, it became an English book. It became an English book. And as you know, it was a book for which many men and women gladly lost their lives. Modern English translation of the Bible began in earnest with William Tyndall, 1494 through 1536. He's a man whom Leland Riken refers to as a linguist genius whose expertise in multiple languages dazzled the scholarly world of his day. It's as if God created him for one purpose, translate the scriptures. In his time, owning a copy of the Bible was illegal. The Roman Catholic Church made it illegal. If you had a Bible, they took it from you and burned it especially if you had one of Tyndall's Bibles. And if they could track you down for having a Bible, they would burn you. 
By the way, that wasn't just back in um, Puritan days. Even in more recent history, if you ever had the opportunity to go onto the Master's College campus, look for uh, a man by the name of Daniel Wong. He's Chinese. And he saw the Red Guard, a group of them, come to his home when he was a child. They destroyed his house looking for their Bible. And then they killed his older brother right in front of his eyes. I'm telling you, this is our generation. It's still happening. But the Roman Catholic Church burned the Bibles, and they burned the people who owned them. They, they especially were burning the people who were making them. In fact, they burned every Bible they could discover in England. William Tyndale set out to, to make a translation of the Word of God into English, but because of the danger there in England, he had to work, he had to do his uh, trans, translation work on the continent, which means, okay, so England is an island, Europe is the continent. He actually went into Antwerp, uh, Germany, and uh, into Worms, which is where Luther was condemned, and that ended up being the place, we think, that Tyndall did much of his translation. The providence of God throughout all of this is amazing. And then, when his translation was finally complete, he had it printed. And when he had it printed, he would go down to the docks and bring his books with him, it was legal, and they would take the Bible and they would stuff it into bales of cloth, and it would get shipped across the channel into England, and he had men on the other side who would reach their arms into these bales of cloth and feel around to find the Bibles, but one by one by one by one by one, the Bibles multiplied in England, and it changed the world. Beloved, as amazing as it is, it's right here, is that Bible. This one is only a facsimile. In the first service, they actually let me hold up Tyndall's Bible. It's smaller than this, and there are only six of them known in existence, and it's right down the hall. It's the only one that's under glass. You need to see it. I held it up here afterwards, after the service, and people were coming up. Can I touch it? They were weeping because they understood the significance of having the Word of God in written form. We've been listening uh, with the kids to uh, the God Smuggler. God Smuggler, right? We always called it the God Smuggler when I was a kid. And yeah, uh, Brother Andrew was mystical, and and there were some things that uh, we don't appreciate too much. But his story is fantastic. Smuggling Bibles into communist countries and praying that God would make seeing eyes blind and how he would take the word of God in there and he couldn't get rid of them quickly enough. The Slavic Gospel Association became a part of that years ago before the Iron Curtain came down in the 80s. They would drive whole truckloads in and the people would line up And they would empty truckloads full of Bibles. They were so hungry, so hungry for the Word of God. Even even in the 1950s, pastors were losing their jobs. They were having to find new careers, or they were killed or sent to Siberia. I've met some of the grandchildren of some of those men who were killed or sent to Siberia, or one then the other. 
Why? For this. For this. What William did, Tim, what William Tyndall did was earth-shattering. It was earth-shattering. Because for the very first time, the people were, were actually able to read the Word of God in their own language. I mean, if you weren't here during, the, um, during Sunday school, let me repeat something that was said. You have to understand context here. If you went to church, you went to a Catholic church, because there wasn't anything else. If you went to Catholic church, the sermons were in Latin. But you're an Englishman, and you're uneducated, and you don't speak Latin. And even the educated people, most of them didn't speak Latin. And so you went into the service to have this hocus-pocus, this abracadabra show. And hocus-pocus was part of their calling down Christ. It was part of their prayer in Latin. And uh, people would come out of the service, and someone would ask, well, what did you hear today? And they would say, oh, just hocus-pocus. Why? Because they couldn't understand a word of it. They couldn't understand a word. That's why it was called the Dark Ages. That was one of the reasons it was called the Dark Ages, but it was all related. It was the Dark Ages because there was no light. There was no word of God. So you were entirely dependent upon your priest to tell you the word of God and the will of God. And where did he get it from? Amazingly, when a young priest would begin studying, he wouldn't, he wouldn't begin studying the Word of God. He would study Aristotle and Plato and Socrates. They would, they would learn classical antiquity. They would learn the languages, but not in the Bible. And, and this really comes out in Martin Luther's story just before Tyndall. When he became a priest, there was one point in his priesthood, years into his priesthood, where his fire, his mentor, came and said, Martin, it's time for you to start studying the Bible. And he shook with fear. The first time I heard that, I thought, you've been studying all these years. You realize how dark it was. How dark. Nobody could see the word of God. Nobody could read the word of God. Nobody was even really hearing the word of God. And then all of a sudden, Tyndall pops up on the scene, and he comes out with this translation of the Bible, the New Testament, in English. And suddenly people, for the first time, in hundreds of years, are beginning to read the Word of God. One day a Catholic sympathizer was in Tyndall's presence and always badgering him about his work. And one day he said to Tyndall, we are better off without God's law than the Pope's. We, we desire more to have the Pope's word than God's. To which Tyndall famously replied, If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow to know more of the scriptures than you. And he did. He did. Eventually, with Tyndall was betrayed by a man that he, he didn't know at first, but he led him into his life, and he became his friend. He was a fellow scholar, and he showed him everything. And one day, this friend said, hey, let's take a walk. Let's go to lunch at so-and-so's house. They had to walk down a narrow alley, and he had it all set up. Only one person could go through at a time. And as he was walking behind Tyndall, 
the guards who were on the other end of the on the other end of the alley looked down the alley and saw him coming and his treacherous friend reached his hand up and pointed to Tyndall in front of him. This is him. And they arrested him. And they put him in jail where he languished in jail for 500 days. A dark cell full of rats. Nowhere to use the facilities. He was cold. We have a short letter from him asking for someone to bring him a cloak and a cap and a copy of the Hebrew dictionary so he could continue his translation in the Old Testament. And then on October 6, 1556, as John Knox reports it in his famous Fox's Book of Martyrs, being brought forth to the place of execution, he was tied to the stake, strangled by the hangman, and afterwards consumed by the fire. And crying out at the stake with a fervent zeal and a loud voice, he said, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And I think it's safe to say that God answered his prayer. But even Tyndall himself couldn't imagine how his little New Testament would change the world. Notwithstanding Tyndall's death, The recent invention of the printing press was a great boon to making the Tyndall translation of the New Testament flourish in England, and as it did, the blood of the martyrs began to spill under the rule of Queen Mary. After the death of Tyndall, other faithful scholars took up the mantle. Miles Coverdale was the inheritor of all of Tyndall's notes. Somehow, in the mystery of God's providence, they arrested Tyndall and they took a bunch of his stuff and they weren't sure what to do with all these manuscripts so the guards turned it over to, to Miles Coverdale who was, an, was almost Tyndall's equal. And Tyndall, or, or Coverdale used them and he came up with, with what is called the Coverdale Bible which, by the way, that also is down the hall. 1535. And after that, John Rogers, also a friend of Tyndall, produced the Matthew Bible which is also down the hall, 1537. And like Tyndall, he too was burned at the stake. And after that, an edict of King Henry VIII charged the clergymen of England to produce what became known as the Great Bible because of its size, 1539. It is also known as the Chained Bible because they would chain it to a podium in the back of the church where people could come in, they could either read it if they knew how to read or someone would read it to them. And so many people were interested in that. Once in a while, somebody would steal it. I mean, it was a honking big Bible, as big as this top of this podium. But, but they wanted the Word of God. People were tempted to steal the Bible. I mean, something's wrong with that, right? And so they chained it to the podium in the back of the church. It's called the Chained Bible, so nobody would steal the Bible. I mean, you, you just couldn't go down to the store and buy one of these. And then they had to pass a law. They had to pass a law that said, when you go to church... When the priest starts giving his homily, no one by law is allowed to be in the back reading the Bible. You have to be in the service, taking the Mass, listening to the hocus pocus. And the point is, people, people were hungry for it. They made great sacrifices for it. And then there came the Geneva Bible, 1560, which was the Bible of the Reformers. John Calvin, John Knox, Beza. It's also the Bible used by Shakespeare and carried to America by the pilgrims on the Mayflower, not the King James. 
the Geneva Bible. And the great appeal of the Geneva Bible is now we have a Bible with chapter headings and numbers, verse numbers for the first time, and study notes. It was the first ever study Bible. And after this came the Bishop's Bible, and then the most well-known Bible version in the English language of all, the King James Version 1611. And I didn't hear an amen, so I'm, I'm almost glad. <laughs> this week as I was studying for this message, I picked up my grandfather's copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs and read the stories of men and women who chose to lose their lives rather than betray the Lord of the book that they loved. Lady Jane Grey, the nine-day queen, they chopped off her head. She was 15 years old. She knew the Bible better than I do. It's amazing. They loved it so much. John Rogers, who I already referred to, burned at the stake. Later, uh, Bishop Ridley and Bishop Hugh Latimer were likewise accused of heresy for preaching the Bible in English. When they arrived together for their execution, Mr. Ridley, Fox tells us, embraced Latimer fervently and bid him, Be of good heart, brother, for God will either assuage the fury of the flame or else strengthen us to abide it. Then they knelt down for prayer at the stake and prayed together for some time. And then one of the brothers, listen, one of the brothers mercifully came to the platform and tied a bag of gunpowder around each of their necks. Mercifully. And then when the fire was set under them, old Latimer was heard to say, Be of good cheer, Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light such a candle in England as I trust will never be put out. I don't know about you. I don't know what this does to your heart, but stories like this affect me deeply. These men loved the word of God and did not count their lives precious when they were counseled to recant or die. And so we've seen something of the dramatic history of the Bible. So, point two. (laughs) And this will be brief. The incalculable worth of the scriptures. We could spend weeks on this, couldn't we? Why would people want to die? Why would people be willing to die for this book? What made it so precious to them? Number one, and I just picked a few. Number one, first, because it was the only true revelation of God in Christ. They loved Jesus, but they didn't know him until they had a Bible they could read. Nothing else in the world could captivate their hearts like the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the Bible is the only place they could find it. How would mankind ever learn God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish. Believes in him, not penance, not indulgences, but believes justification by faith alone. Anyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. How would they know that without the Bible? And how would they ever hear that all of us like sheep have gone astray? Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That had, to be, that had to come to us from outside. It's not something that we could deduce on our own. It had to be by revelation. Second, 
The Bible brought them into relationship with God in Christ, and it also became for them the treasure chest of ultimate truth. Jesus said, John 17, 17, Thy word is truth. Not thy word contains truth. Thy word is truth. You want to know truth? Know this book. You're being taught something? Smells like error? Check it against this book. And don't believe me, beloved. I've said this a thousand times since I've been pastor here. Don't believe me. Check out what I tell you against this book to see whether it's so. Third, these brothers and sisters love the Bible because it created for them a community of brothers and sisters whose love for one another was something the world knew nothing of. And one of those communities lived in England. And they were so bound to one another because of this book. They went to jail together, women and children as well as men, and finally boarded the Mayflower and came to America with their Geneva Bible because they loved the community of the saints more than life. And I was thinking this week, is there, a, is there a text that can kind of summarize all, not all, but at least in a concentrated way, some of why the Bible is precious to us? And I thought of Psalm 19, and I read it earlier. Let me just read the appropriate portion again. Listen to David's terms in referring to the Word of God. Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. Why? Because it restores the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Why? Because it makes the simple wise. The precepts of the Lord are right. How so? They're rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord. And isn't that interesting? One of the names for Scripture is the fear of the Lord. It's clean. It endures forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. And I would tell you that these Puritan pastors said in their own souls, it is more desirable than life. And sweeter than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. That's why they were willing to die for this. Job said, Job 23, 12, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Can we say that? The last time you skipped a meal, you read the Bible or to pray. How should we respond to this? How should we respond to all of this? The Apostle Paul would say, now let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. The psalmist would exhort you, meditate on it day and night and you will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf doesn't wither and whatever you do will prosper. And what should you do with the Bible? Here's what you do. You read it. You love it. You eat it. You drink it. You meditate on it day and night. You let it fill you. Let it rule you. Let it purify you. And let it plunge you into the bottomless ocean of the knowledge of God. In Psalm 119, 89, David says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. And we sang just a little while ago Martin Luther's words, Let goods and kindred go. Let them go. 
this mortal life also. The body, they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. In the 1600s, Catholic France, by the way, France is still known as Catholic France because it is very much so. More so back then because they found out you didn't have to have a Bible. You just had to declare yourself Protestant and you had the death sentence. And talk about the blood flowing. And you know what would happen? These young men, pastors, Protestant pastors, they wanted to reach French for God, but they knew they weren't trained and they couldn't be trained in France. So you know where they went? They flew to Geneva. And not by plane, by foot. But to Geneva. You know why? Because John Calvin had a seminary. And you know what he called it? The Seminary of Death. How'd you like to apply to that? You know why he called it the Seminary of Death? You're going to train these men. We're sending you back to France. And you're going to die. They never had a lack of students. Never. And they would send them back. You know what these young men were called and their families? These Protestant French people? The Huguenots or the Huguenots, depending on how it's supposed to be um, pronounced. And the French authorities killed them. As many as they could find and track down, burn them, behead them, whatever they could do to kill them. But they couldn't kill God's word. They couldn't kill the gospel. And years later, somebody erected a a monument in their honor. And you know what it read? Here are the words. Hammer away, you hostile hands. Your hammer breaks. God's anvil stands. No matter what this world does to eradicate the word of God, it will not be moved. As B.B. Warfield has said, the very wrath of man has come to praise him in this sphere too. And the Bible has emerged from these fires as out of all others without so much as the smell of smoke upon it. And Isaiah said, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. I don't know about you, but this makes my life feel pretty trivial and shallow. We are so psychologically and entertainment-driven and motivated, we know nothing of what it is to love this book more than life, because life is here. Let's pray. You know, so Father, we ask you to change us and to put within us a desire to know your word to obey your word, to be filled richly with your word to such an extent that to poke us is to cause us to bleed Bible. Not because we worship the Bible, but we love it so much because it reveals you to us. We need your help, O Lord, because our hearts are not naturally inclined in that direction. So help us to help one another be faithful as people of the book. And we praise you, Father, that no matter what happens in this world, because your word is still here, truth remains. And we praise you for it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.